Welcome back, everybody, to the Luke Beasley Show. It is so great to be with you on this Tuesday, and I should say it's great to be back with you after a couple-day break from the show. Took a little long weekend there, and I've mentioned this to you all before, but I really do love doing the show, so when I am not doing it on a normal weekday, it really weirds me out and <laughs> feels strange, and I'm kind of stressed out almost about not doing it, so it definitely is good to be back in the routine. And I tried my very best, as people often advise me to do, to take off time from the news, right? Don't look at every story as you're not having to talk about them for those days. And so I did my best. And again, very uncomfortable for me. Clearly, this is the job I'm supposed to do because even just not keeping up with the news stressed me out. Um, but I'm back tuned in and back with you all, which feels wonderful. And uh, let's dive into it. You may have heard that for a while now, House Republicans and many Republicans across the board have been advocating for the Secretary of Homeland Security, Alejandro Mayorkas, to be uh, impeached and he should not be in office is their position on Alejandro Mayorkas based on the Department of Homeland Security's handling of the southern border under the Biden administration and the talking points they put out there to justify this effort are absurd and we'll focus in on one of them now. So I have to preface all this by saying then we'll get into Lauren Boebert pushing for this in a moment from a recent hearing where she's kind of a little bit fact checked on one of these talking points. But uh, of course, there is a massive issue, which will be the subject of this segment with fentanyl, with fentanyl deaths, with it coming across the southern border, all of that. But the reason for that is not because of this narrative that Republicans push about there being an open border and Alejandro Mayorkas isn't enforcing laws at the border and isn't trying to address this issue. I'll talk about the facts on fentanyl, on this subject. What is the Biden administration doing to try to address it? Is it something that you could attribute to Biden policy or is it not? We'll get to all of that. But the facts is not the interest, um, not the focus of House Republicans. It's more just a political effort to attack the Biden administration and thus Alejandro Mayorkas. So here was from the end of 2022, we started hearing this talking point, Lauren Boebert uh, saying this. On May Mayorkas's watch, more than 14,000 pounds of fentanyl was seized in fiscal year 2022 at our southern border. That is an all-time record high. So this is one of the things we'll focus on in this segment is the topic of clearly the Biden administration is doing a bad job. This is what we'll hear from them of handling the southern border or doesn't care about fentanyl coming across because large numbers have been seized. Large amounts have been seized of fentanyl at the southern border wait, wouldn't that indicate that clearly they do care and are trying to prevent it from getting in the country because huge amounts are being seized? And I'm about to show you uh, Dr. Raul Gupta, who is the uh, director of the Office of National Drug Control Policy, saying actually you could attribute a good bit of the increase we've seen of seizures to better technology. That's his viewpoint. And uh, this was that interaction during a recent hearing with Lauren Boebert as well. We have more seizures today than we have had at any time. Do you and believe that's because more is coming over than at any other time? I think we have better technology. I, have, I think we have more committed men and women in uniform. So again, we will get to the fact we have seen an increase in a very relevant metric when it comes to this, which is drug overdoses due to fentanyl. And so it's not to say we haven't seen an uptick, an explosion of this 
illegal industry. We have. But clearly there's an effort to address that. And the Biden administration can't control uh, the fact that we have seen long before Biden got into office a consistent uptick um, in fentanyl coming into this country and a consistent explosion of this illegal industry all he can control and all his uh the people under him can control is the policies they use to address this reality and just quickly before we dive into more details here's one more moment from the same hearing with representative dan goldman i guess i'm a little troubled by uh tweets such as this from a hold it up please a colleague of mine from new york who criticizes President Biden uh, because in, during his administration, more than 34,000 pounds of deadly fentanyl has been seized at the southern border. That means that it did not come into our communities, right? Yes, Congressman, if the assertion is we should let all of this come in and kill Americans, I will disagree with that every single day and every single minute. Right. We're trying to stop the fentanyl. With so the talking point just does not make sense from the GOP of Biden is horrible and Alejandro Mayorkas is horrible because there are large number, uh, numbers of seizures of fentanyl at the southern border because that's the recourse that the Biden administration can do. That's what they can be up to. That's how they can address this issue is to try to seize as much as possible. And what we just heard there um, from Dr. Let's see, now I'm blanking on the uh, Gupta. There we go, Dr. Gupta. He is saying some of that can be attributed to us working harder to seize, to stop. And that is what we should be doing. So why you're trying to then turn around and impeach um, and then the idea would be removed from office, Alejandro Mayorkas is pretty absurd. So first thing on this, if you take a look at the chart I'm putting up on screen, you notice that starting back in the title of the chart is fentanyl deaths have increased every year since 2012. And this is a very relevant metric because it's not seizures, which you don't exactly know, is that better seizing or is that more fentanyl or both? Probably, definitely both. Um, this gives you a sense of the impact of the fentanyl and clearly larger numbers, um, larger amounts getting across, contributing to these overdose deaths. And fentanyl is a driving force within our uh, opiate epidemic. And so you can see here, it's just been shooting up all throughout part of the Obama administration, Trump administration, and then continuing in the Biden administration. There's something larger going on. And it's not to say it, it shouldn't be addressed. It should. This is a crisis. You saw that in 2020 on this chart, 70,000 deaths from fentanyl uh, or primarily from fentanyl. And it's continued throughout the Biden administration up and up and up. And that is horrible. But we need honest discussions about how to solve that, not just politically motivated bashing of whoever's currently in power, in this case, President Biden. And so then getting to what is Biden doing within the context of the power he has as president to address this fact, is he completely giving up on border policy? Is he opening the border? No, of course not. And I can't go through all of the bullet points I have in the past about how the border is not open in this segment. We'll just focus on what is being uh, pushed for from the Biden administration to address specifically fentanyl 
overdoses, but you can see here, put out by the White House, Biden administration announces new actions and funding to address the overdose epidemic and support recovery. And it goes through specifics. I'll try to throw this down in the description box below if you want to read further, including $1.5 billion for all states and territories to address addiction, the opioid crisis, and $104 million to expand substance use treatment, and on and on it goes, announcing additional funding for law enforcement officials on the front lines of the overdose epidemic. We also know that the resources being allocated to the border have stayed uh, at similar levels as the Trump administration. He, he's not defunding our border security as Republicans allude to. And he's actually pushing for larger increases. President Biden's budget strengthens border security, as this uh, White House press release also notes, enhances legal pathways and provides resources to enforce our immigration laws and uh, he is looking to enhance border security and immigration enforcement by a significant amount, including $25 billion for U.S. Customs and Border Protection, an increase of almost $800 million over the 2023 enacted level when controlling for border management amounts. And then another thing just quickly here, focusing in specifically on fentanyl, they're also attempting to include $46.1 billion in Biden's fiscal year 2024 budget for the national drug control program agencies to address this very problem so clearly the talking point of it's being ignored or it's being supported or the secretary of homeland security is uh, not following through on his duty to care about this problem or biden's not following through on his duty to care about this problem it's just not accurate there's not a basis in fact there is a basis in fact for this being a significant issue. But similar to how we talk about with so many things on this show, when there are real problems, we need real discussions about those problems so that we can get to real solutions. But if you're coming at it with a dishonest uh, lens or you're trying to put a dishonest lens in front of your followers' eyes, then it's impossible for us to really craft meaningful solutions. And within that context, it's really hard to address these problems. So my call to Republicans is, whoops, sorry about that, is stop lying about these subjects, stop putting out these dishonest talking points, and let's actually attempt to solve the problem. Governor Ron DeSantis, who is of course also running for president as a Republican in the 2024 presidential primary, did an interview with Megyn Kelly on the Megyn Kelly show and finally got confronted even though Megyn Kelly is herself a right winger, she actually confronted him about the ideological hypocrisy, I guess you could call it, when it comes to the purported principles of conservatives uh, juxtaposed against the actions DeSantis takes. Uh, big government, you could call it actions against private companies that disagree with his political views and how that just doesn't seem to be coherent within the framework we've been told conservatives abide by. And Finally, because DeSantis was confronted, we got to see what it looks like whenever he tries to defend this attack on Woke and Disney and now Bud Light. And he's threatening suing Bud Light over being boycotted, but he supported the boycott over them being too woke. And so he's going to punish them for losing money and uh, not falling through with their duty to the shareholders based on a boycott that he supported because of Bud Light going woke. And then, of course, everything he's been caught up in with Disney. And 
That is him trying to leverage his power, his government against companies he disagrees with politically, which is not a small government thing to do. And now that he tried to answer for that, and it wasn't just a softball interview the whole time, he imploded. And this is a complete uh, failure to answer this question on his part. So I'll show you this first clip and then we have a second as well. Much as the base is angry at these woke corporations, and I get it, and I know you get it, aren't you doing the very thing to these companies that conservatives are mad at left-wing leaders for doing, using government to punish citizens for political wrong think? No, not at all. So taking Anheuser-Busch, I mean, we're not punishing them. They departed from business practices by indulging in social activism. That has caused a huge problem for their company and their, and their stock price has gone down. Well, our pension fund in Florida holds uh, Anheuser-Busch InBev stock. So it's actually hurt teachers, it's hurt cops, it hurts firefighters who depend. We looked at the specifics in a past segment. You can find it covering his announcement of thinking about legal action against Bud Light for essentially being too woke and sponsoring a trans woman. That was the justification for a massive boycott and now possibly legal action. It's pretty wild and unheard of, but it's a very small impact on the portfolio he's referencing for the state of Florida. And on that pension fund. And so didn't it's you support the boycott against them? No, I did, but that's just as a personal thing. But I mean, we didn't have like the, the, the state government, you know, necessarily, you know, putting power about it. But as, a, as an American, I said, I'm not, I'm not doing Anheuser, but I'm not doing Bud Light. <laughs> I love that. It gives away the whole game. We are mad at Anheuser-Busch InBev because they departed from proper business practices and the pension fund, the Florida State Pension Fund is now suffering, again, a very small amount, but suffering because of that, because they hold uh, InBev stock. But then Megyn Kelly asks, didn't you support the boycott? So you participated in the financial damage that then you're wanting to take action over. That's pretty ridiculous, sir. Then here's a follow-up question from Megyn Kelly. So why can't Disney oppose your law? They can. They and why can. can't they promote they, they this can. agenda in their viewpoint? They can. Without being punished by the state. They're not being punished. We're just simply removing a special benefits that they have had that really weren't They were worse off when it was done than they were before they, before they spoke out. Well, no. I mean, it was, first of all, we didn't actually do anything to Disney. There was a government that had been in place that they had effectively corrupted, which was not the way it was supposed to be, by, by the way, if you look at how this started in 68. So we changed the governing structure, which really didn't even impact them directly. They're just indirectly, they don't like it because, you know, they don't get to call the shots anymore. But we, they are not entitled to corporate welfare. You do not have a constitutional right to corporate welfare. I know welfare. that, but it's not and about an entitlement. It's not about entitlement. If I go to my boss and I say, I, uh, you sexually harassed me, and then suddenly he reduces my salary from 200000 to 100000 that's retaliation. I am worse off. And it's not a defense to say, well, everybody else at the company was getting 100000 You've reduced my circumstances. You've, you've punished me. No, but, but that, that's an that's a employer-employee relationship. I think that that's much different. But, you, but this is but, the state taking away a benefit. But, but, your, but your position is basically that Florida should be forced to subsidize Disney regardless of how it's going to use those subsidies so that they can weaponize the subsidies they get from the state 
and turn it against state policy, why would we want to subsidize that behavior? Well, why here, should Florida thing, taxpayers I get it, have I get to underwrite it. that? But I don't want a President Gavin Newsom doing this to conservative companies or companies who have a more conservative viewpoint. Well, here's what I would say. I don't think there's any arrangement in America that mirrored the arrangement Disney had in Florida. For so the funny thing is whenever he thought it was politically advantageous, he did tout his actions as a retaliation of sorts. He said, because they're going woke, we are doing this. Now he realizes this does kind of contradict what I pretend to stand for as a small government conservative. And so, no, actually, this is just something that I've been meaning to do for a long time. And the woke thing was just a good chance, a reminder that they shouldn't have special benefits and this, that, and the other thing. But see, you doing that, taking away something that they had and you didn't have a problem with before in response to them going woke in your mind, having political views and expressing them that you were not okay with, that is you punishing them. That is, as Megyn Kelly pointed out, if you have a salary, even if it seems like you're getting a too generous salary, if you came out against your boss and said that they had sexually harassed you and then that's when all of a sudden he has a realization that your salary is too high then clearly he is punishing you for doing that thing same thing here with ron DeSantis. and as you could tell he got so flustered and doesn't exactly know what's going on and i think the reason he's backing off of proudly saying he's fighting back against the woke company directly is because of information like this a recent poll was done by i think it was uh the new york times and uh, in consultation with uh, one of the polling agencies, and it asked, which of these two Republicans would you be more likely to support in a Republican primary for president? Number one is a candidate who promises to fight corporations that promote woke left ideology. The second is a candidate who says that the government should stay out of deciding what corporations can support. And among Republican voters, you had 38% say, yes, I want my elected leaders to fight back against woke ideology with corporations and 52% said, no, I want them to stay out of what corporations can and can't support. Don't punish them when they speak out against policies that uh, you support or that you push for. So even Republican primary voters or likely Republican primary voters aren't exactly down with this type of policy. And so DeSantis is now trying to say, nah, I mean, yeah, I didn't like the woke and so they shouldn't be treated preferentially, but I only had that realization once they started going woke. And it is him leveraging his power, as I said, in his position as governor to try to punish them for speaking out against legislation that he supported. And this is yet another reminder of the very real situation with, yes, people across the board, lots of people violate their own principles, but we see it very often with Republican leaders where will engage with their principle, honestly, thinking naively that they mean it. How often have I sat around and argued as to why the philosophy of just small government generally, just the federal bu uh, budget spending needs to be as small as possible is way oversimplified. In some places, the government does a good job. Some places it doesn't. Take it out of the bad place, put it into the good places and uh, design it to benefit the citizens that it should serve to benefit as best as possible. And then the second that it's not advantageous or they get a little whim to go the opposite direction, they will. And so what were all those conversations for? Clearly, it wasn't about that. It was about the particular policy you were saying you had a principle against, but it wasn't. It was just the particular policy. And an example is 
when talking about universal healthcare. Sometimes I, I can't even get to a conversation about the specifics of uh, different healthcare policies, country by country, and how countries with universal healthcare fare better on all these different metrics than the United States. And that's why we should implement a similar universal healthcare program. And every developed country has a universal healthcare program. And the United States doesn't. And all of that sometimes can't even be said because they said, "Sorry, I." I just can't even on principle support such a large government program and uh, because I'm a small government conservative and that drives my ideology. And so it's kind of a cop out from good policy discussions about could the government do this effectively based on studies, based on research or based on examples from other places around the globe. And then here instantly it's, ah, never mind. I don't actually have that philosophy or I don't actually believe that the government shouldn't punish political views. It's uh, the constant violation of principles, which makes it really hard to believe people when they tell you they have a principle. The effort by House Republicans to smear President Joe Biden as a super corrupt president who was caught up in this bribery scheme and all these different things we've been hearing continues to unravel day after day, brutally so. And I have an update on that for you today. So the uh, House Republican-led Oversight Committee, of course, James Comer being the chairman of that committee, held a closed-door meeting with a witness that was again supposed to be a bombshell witness for Republicans. And this was the former business associate of Hunter Biden, uh, Devin Archer. And whether he was intending to or not, he assisted in once again debunking a lot of the key accusations against President Biden, or at least not providing any information that would bolster the accusations against President Biden. And I'll walk you through Democratic Representative Dan Goldman just shredding the dishonesty from Republicans because he was in this meeting. And now James Comer hasn't released the transcript from this closed door meeting, but Dan Goldman's saying, release the transcript. It's not going to help your narrative whatsoever. So we'll get to a lot of uh, different things on this, but I will talk about and we'll get to kind of what is the one thing they're taking from this closed door meeting as a win other than that they're being kind of quiet about what went on when it comes to republicans and then we'll also look at andy biggs admitting yeah the key part of our whole narrative against president biden here devin archer actually directly contradicted lots to discuss starting with dan goldman saying this Five million dollar bribe. Yes, thank you for doing that. So he, he, we did bring up the uh, FD 1023, um, and he categorically said that uh, he ha was unaware, had no knowledge of any five million dollar pay. So this is him recounting Devin Archer, again, business partner of Hunter Biden in the past, uh, what he had to say about the key accusation against Biden from Republicans, which is this. $5 million bribe, or some people say tens of millions of dollars of bribes to President Biden. Again, no evidence. Payment made to either Hunter Biden or to Joe Biden and would be shocked if that actually existed. And let's remember, he was on the Burisma board with Hunter Biden. So he, if, as a board member, he would have known if Burisma was paying a bribe to any of the Bidens. And we also know that it's not the case because Burisma thought... All right, uh, Congressman. And then Newsmax there cuts away. So that's pretty notable, right? You keep saying that Biden was bribed, but then one of the people who would have very intimate knowledge of that who was supposed to be your big bombshell witness or one of them is saying no knowledge of that. And if I am to speculate, that doesn't seem like 
it would have happened even if it was outside of my scope of knowledge. Then here's Andy Biggs, a Republican, also acknowledging that was uh, the witness's answer. Can you talk about the bribe at all? Five million dollar bribe. He, he didn't know anything about that. He didn't know anything about that. No, he didn't know anything about that. Do you think today's testimony made it? He didn't know anything about that. You would think that he would, but he didn't. And then just one more clip here from this press conference with Dan Goldman. There is not a shred of evidence of a single conflict of interest of President Biden ever doing anything in connection or in relation to Hunter Biden's business ventures other than advocating for the removal of a prosecutor general who was advantageous to Burisma. The only evidence we have right now of any official action by President Biden in connection to Hunter Biden's business interests is bad for Hunter Biden's business interests. Yep something we've discussed in the past. If Biden was bribed to help the business interests of Burisma, why did he do and uh, support and advocate for a policy that did not benefit Burisma based on what Devin Archer had to say? Doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Then we'll get to in just a moment, one more moment from Dan Goldman during a CNN interview. But what was the win for Republicans in their mind on this? Well, what you'll hear a lot being reported on in kind of right-wing media is this proves what Devin Archer said, that Biden did know about and was a part of these foreign business dealings because Devin Archer said that there were multiple instances where Hunter Biden, while in a social setting with people who he worked with, would put his dad on speakerphone. Devin Archer also said over the course of the decade that he's referring to this period of time numerous occasions where this happened that business never came up the dealings never came up and definitely biden wasn't a part of any of these dealings but he noted that especially during for example when and dan goldman will make this point as well Bo biden passed away uh, a very hard time for the biden family hunter biden and joe biden were on the phone constantly as father and son and thus whenever hunter biden was with people and I'm not even, by the way, saying Hunter Biden wasn't doing this to impress people. He was. He was trying to benefit from nepotism or the last name that he had. No one denies that. It's, did Joe Biden do something wrong? And to be put on speakerphone and say hi, apparently it was small talk, not at all bolstering the narrative that Republicans are pushing for, unless you have proof that he was engaged in business dealings. And that's what time and time again is being knocked down and is not uh, at this point at all been proven to be factual. And so uh, that's kind of what they're taking as C because he talked to within the context of being speak put on speakerphone in a social setting with Hunter Biden, who he was calling a lot at these periods of time. He did technically talk to these business partners who Hunter Biden was with, but okay, maybe not about business, but still it shows that there was something corrupt. No. And I will note again, because I don't at all want this to be forgotten or ignored. We do live in a country where if you have a prominent last name, you get jobs that you probably wouldn't get otherwise. And that's definitely Hunter Biden. Absolutely. That's different than Biden was bribed and it's very irresponsible to connect the two. And it's very different then Biden was a part of a broader effort to assist in Hunter Biden's business dealings. He was engaged in some larger uh, scheme going on there connected to the bribery accusations. And so that's really important to know. Last clip we'll look at. 
And, and I would urge Chairman Comer, rather than to continue to send out uh, misinformation about what transpired in the, uh, the transcribed interview, to actually put out the transcript, which he can do as soon as he wants. Because I think anyone who reads that transcript, and I was there, so I can tell you what happened, would come away from that believing that Joe Biden had nothing to do with Hunter Biden's business dealings, derived no benefit from it, received no money, and did not know about anything that Hunter Biden was doing, nor did he ever discuss it with Hunter Biden or the business associates. The fact that he spoke to business associates of Hunter Biden to say hello, to have small talk, casual conversation, is not evidence that Joe Biden or Hunter Biden did anything wrong. So it is uh, very far afield. And let me say as well, does it bother me that Hunter Biden couldn't have just prioritized the appearance that could be murky of what that um, kind of situation can can bring up in people's minds because he was trying to benefit from his last name? And why didn't he just, to help his dad, take a job that was completely unrelated to anything? Of course, that would have been great. Absolutely. But we also see this constantly with everyone with prominent last names. So it's just not notable and it's not something that justifies further incorrect accusations against Biden. And he hasn't been proven to do anything. Um, definitely not criminal or even significant wrongdoing hasn't been uncovered at this point in time. But yeah, Hunter Biden was definitely playing the game. We see too many people play. We'll end on this. Actually, the uh, White House a spokesman saying, it appears that the House Republicans own much hype witness today testified that he never heard of President Biden discussing business with his son or his son's associates or doing anything wrong. House Republicans keep promising bombshell evidence to support the ridiculous attacks against the president, but time after time they kept uh, they keep failing to produce any. In fact, even their own witnesses appear to be debunking their allegations, which is pretty brutal. And uh, I'm curious to see how long this goes on. We spend a lot of time on this show, I think justifiably so, but we definitely do talking about bad stories, aggravating stories, wacky, uh, ridiculous actions and statements by the MAGA Republicans that are holding far too much power currently and all these different things. And it can make it easy because the drama that's going on constantly with national politics to forget good things that might happen at local levels or the state level or whatever. And that's what I want to update you on now. An example of what I think more local governments should be doing, more city governments should be uh, up to. And this is reporting on what New York City is up to on gun violence. Adams, of course, Mayor Eric Adams, outlines $485 million blueprint to address NYC gun violence. Now, New York State already has more strict gun laws. So this is more getting to root causes, not necessarily regulating guns differently, but investing in communities in the long term to affect gun violence in the long term. New York City released a community safety plan on Monday 
that outlined steps to address gun violence in all five boroughs. According to Mayor Eric Adams, the more than $485 million plan will double public safety efforts, invest in hardest hit communities, support youth, and activate levels of city government to prioritize prevention-based public safety approaches. The report builds on the city's 18-month effort to reduce gun violence and culminates months of engagement with communities most affected by gun violence. More than 50 task force members representing 20 city agencies engaged approximately 1,500 community residents over the course of spring 2023 through community meetings in youth town halls this is why local activism is important leveraging uh, pushing on your local leaders because a lot can be done there as well it's not all just national politics uh early inter so then i'll break down kind of the seven key strategies here early intervention investing in supporting mentoring uh, youth to prevent involvement in gun violence, housing, huge navigation of benefits, uh, access to public benefits for New Yorkers and assist in justice related individuals and families navigating benefit programs, community vitality, invest in public spaces, parks, playgrounds, community centers, employment and entrepreneurship, trauma informed care, diagnosing mental uh, illness, ensuring an appropriate crisis response for those experiencing mental health episodes, and then police and community relations, $2.6 million being spent to strengthen the bonds of trust between police and communities by enabling greater collaboration on neighborhood safety initiatives, ensuring more effective policing that balances the twin imperatives of security and justice. And it breaks down more specifics, but we'll stop there um, on that article. So investing in these more long-term solutions, root cause related things, and also you have to have correct gun laws, stricter federally is what we need. Luckily, New York does currently have more strict than so many red states. Uh, here is Letitia James, the attorney general, speaking about this. The mayor's plan represents an incredible investment that will help us continue our work. The work that we are doing each and every day to target the root of gun violence by investing in our youth and ensuring that they have an opportunity from a young age, expanding access to housing, and let me say it again, housing, 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 and not just affordable housing, but supportive housing. Supportive housing for individuals struggling with MICA, mentally ill, chemically addicted individuals. Organizations that were closed under previous administrations now need to be opened. More support for the violence interrupters who are on the ground each and every day because of their lived experiences putting in the real and necessary work to improve police and community relations, because believe it or not, despite what you may say, there's communities that want the police on their blocks. They know the police. They want to establish a relationship with the police. They respect the police, but they want the police to respect them as well. Because when you give people an opportunity, when you give them a job, when you give them a home, when you see them, when you talk to them, when you respect them, you are giving them hope and purpose and letting them know that the government is there to serve them and not to ignore them. Exactly right. And I said it before, I'll say it again. This is what local leaders should be up to. This should be the priority. And it's not to say this is the solution to the lack of action federally and the lack of action in red states from republicans but as we sit and continue to try to change that reality the only thing that local leaders can do 
is uh, work within their context and the power that they have to try to move the needle somehow in some way. Even though, as we talked about, over 70% in a particular time frame that was analyzed uh, in a study we've covered in the past found that over 70% of the guns used in gun violence uh, situations in New York State came from out of state. So clearly, even with better strict gun laws in the state of New York, it's hard to solve the issue or to really get at it as you could if you had better national policy. But it's good to see New York leaders doing something in the meantime. One of the things I missed while I was off on Friday was the fact that Jack Smith is bringing additional charges against Trump and the classified documents case is getting even more damning against Donald Trump. And I want to look at Fox News, the weekend edition of Fox and Friends, having to admit that, yeah, this evidence is pretty damning. But in case you missed this quickly to update you on it, remarkable new charges against Donald Trump and two associates in the classified documents case Thursday significantly deepened the ex-president's legal plight and dragged the 2024 election further into an unprecedented legal quagmire. Special counsel Jack Smith alleged following his initial 37 charges in the case that Trump requested the deletion of security footage at his Mar-a-Lago resort to prevent it uh, from becoming provided or from being provided, I should say, to a grand jury. Additionally, prosecutors now allege that Trump and two aides conspired to keep classified White House documents and conceal them from the grand jury, including by suggesting to one of his attorneys that he lied to investigators. So this is charging related to the cover-up. You have the initial crimes that were being investigated and the attempt to cover up the crimes as that investigation was going on. And then here's this being reported on by Fox News. And you'll hear one of the hosts saying, this is pretty damning. Let's start with President Trump. Let's start with uh, Mar-a-Lago. What uh, this this new indictment in the classified documents case. Tell me what is new about this that makes it stand out from not just all the other indictments, but particularly the indictment when it comes to classified documents. Well, this new superseding indictment essentially brings forth different evidence, more evidence about specific allegations that Jack Smith has that President Trump allegedly directed individuals that worked for him to destroy information that was being sought by a subpoena. So that is very specific in terms of the, um, the actual allegations of destroying this information, not just retaining things and saying that he specifically had a, a claim of ownership over them. And so the, the facts of that are actually quite damning to a defendant, generally speaking. I think there's still other legal issues here in terms of, of the status of the president, but that is the, the general nature of that. And it, it involves another individual as well. And she's exactly right there. And when even the weekend lineup of Fox and Friends has to admit that, it's getting pretty bad for Trump. And I do think if a fair trial takes place and the evidence is able to be brought forward, it's not looking good for Donald Trump, and I think he may actually be legally held accountable, which is hard to imagine, but I think it could definitely happen based on the evidence we're aware of. And if you can bring forward, as I'm sure Jack Smith will, solid evidence that Trump was ordering, was requesting, demanding that uh, security footage, evidence be destroyed to cover up his own crimes and other things as well to cover up his own crimes, that is not good if you're attempting to advocate on trump's side for his defense it is good for him being held accountable well then monday came around 
it looks like, and um, or this may have been late last week reporting on this as well. And the other Fox and Friends cast was trying to muddy the waters a little bit, less certain about how damning this is. Thanks so much. Yeah, Brooke, good get talking to the former president last night. Uh, that's great. He said on social media, too, he said this is what you get for leading the polls for White House in 2024. He said it's election interference at the highest level. We're seeing that. It's 140 years. The guy had classified materials in his in his house. OK, well, so did some other presidents or vice presidents. And are they experiencing this? Did they get raided? Where are the charges? Uh, where's the accountability for them? Where's the special counsel in the Joe Biden um, classified documents in his house? House and next to his car, you know, in a, in a garage or. You remember when I asked a Trump supporter, do you know what a whataboutism is? Because that seems to happen a lot. And she's actually there saying, well, what about this? What about this? And we've gone through it all before. The cases are not remotely similar. And a lot of reasons as to why that is that we've discussed previously. But this is another example. There's no cover up being one of the things that sets this so apart in the situation of Trump, there's not a cover-up when they say, what about Biden and the uh, these other situations? Plus, the raid point, the search warrant point of why didn't they raid Biden's house like they raided Trump's house? If Trump did what Biden did, none of this would be necessary. Biden immediately, once he found these classified documents, turned them over to federal authorities. Trump didn't and the batch that he did turn over voluntarily he's not being charged for he's not he turned over 15 boxes initially and said that's it and then he had more and they had to raid to get them that's where all of this started becoming so criminal that federal authorities had to go ahead and bring charges and so comparing the two situations is incredibly incredibly dishonest quickly it's funny, in the past, there's all these clips when he was speaking out against Hillary Clinton of Trump now looking at these clips, saying things that apply so directly to him. You know, if you're suing somebody privately and they delete and get rid of all your stuff that you subpoena, you got a very big consequence. You know what the consequence is, right? So if he finds that serious with a lawsuit, a private lawsuit, as he was referring to, then you can imagine something as serious as this attempting to destroy evidence, which seems to be what he was up to pretty wild. Came across a segment from Chuck Todd on NBC that was super stunning, interesting, but devastating about the effect seemingly of rhetoric from Republicans and beliefs and theories within Republican populations. And the, as we've talked about many times in the past, effect that had on the death rate in Republican communities versus Democratic communities, especially after the vaccine started to be rolled out and political viewpoints very much influenced whether people got the vaccine or not. And the reason this is coming back up now is, and why I want to talk about it, Chuck Todd makes the case that this could affect the upcoming 2024 election. That's how significant the difference was, especially post-vaccine. And so we'll get to that. And also, it's just important to circle back on the devastating consequences of uh, dishonesty. And sometimes after we get past, for example, the most devastating part of the pandemic, then it stops being referenced as much that truly rhetoric really hurt people during this time. It's important to circle back on that. But take a look at this from Chuck Todd, then we will discuss. Welcome back, data download time. The official COVID-19 health emergency may be over. 
this week a scientific study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association revealed what many had suspected. Republicans who lagged behind in accepting the efficacy of the COVID vaccine paid a steeper price. Researchers from Yale examined 538,000 deaths in people 25 and older in Florida and Ohio from April 2020 to December 2021. And they found that the excess death rate, deaths beyond what would normally be expected, was 15% higher for registered Republicans than for Democrats. But after the vaccine became available in April of 2021 to a majority of the population, the death rate among Republicans was 43% higher. So what about the nation? And then he's going to get to NBC's analysis of raw numbers. But first here, when looking at death rates, so overall, Republicans experienced a 15% higher death rate from COVID. And you could attribute that to a number of different things. You have to assume part of that is the rhetorical difference between Democrats and Republicans and Democrats taking these precautions more seriously. Then after the vaccine specifically, that jumps to 43%. And that you can directly attribute most likely to largely the stances on getting the vaccine. Continue. As a whole, to test the theory further, we looked at deaths over the same time periods and used county level 2020 presidential election results as a proxy for whether a county leaned Democratic or Republican. So here's what we found. The post-vaccine period in the study was harder on counties that voted for Donald Trump than those that voted for Joe Biden in 2020. Biden counties experienced more deaths from COVID before the vaccine became widely available than Trump counties did, about 325,000 versus 218,000 respectively. More people live in Biden counties and they're more densely populated. But after the vaccine became widely available, look at the numbers now in the spring of 2021, numbers flip. There were about 104,000 COVID deaths in Biden counties, about 24% of the total COVID deaths through December of 21. That so then, even though Biden counties are more populated, after the vaccine was rolled out, Trump counties experienced more COVID deaths. It flipped after. So more than 135,000 of COVID deaths in Trump counties after the vaccine, 38% of the total COVID deaths during that time. These numbers could actually matter in the 2024 election. Remember, here are the three closest states. Arizona decided by just over 10,000 votes. Georgia, just under 12,000 votes. Wisconsin, just over 20,000 votes. And the COVID post-vaccine patterns in these three states look very similar to what the Journal of American Medical Association found. In the Trump counties, 35% higher than the Biden counties in Arizona. Same story in Georgia. So then, of course, the point he's making there is this could actually end up playing a role in the results of the upcoming presidential election because of these disproportionate uh, deaths. And that's grim to think about. And the only point being made here is one of uh, it's heartbreaking, it's devastating, it's enraging that Republicans, Republican leaders chose to push so much misinformation that so many people bought into. And then when you look at after the vaccine, the effect in part that that had on the lives of people, it is stunning. And to think that that impact and the disproportionate nature of the impact because of this mis uh, misinformation could impact an election, that's how large it is, that's how wide the gap is, is unbelievable. And in the short term, 
Republicans chose to do this for, I guess, political reasons, thinking it would benefit them to be against everything that I guess Democrats were more in favor of. And that's why it was good for them to be against it when it came to public health measures and the vaccine. And again, in the most grim, dark way possible, they could have shot themselves in the foot by pushing out this type of misinformation by lying about these different subjects. And is it to say that Democrats, Democratic leaders, even public health officials were perfect at every turn? No, far from it. And mistakes were made. But trying your best to be in line with the best available evidence and information at that point in time that the public health community was putting out was the way to go. And that's what so many Republicans didn't do. And now we're seeing the effect of that. And it's it's pretty stunning. Thank you all so much for watching and listening to today's show. I will see you tomorrow.